0: From McKinsey & Company Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today we continue our series on bias busters, specifically how executives can prevent from falling prey to cognitive and organizational biases that get in the way of good decision making. Joining me today in our New York office are McKinsey partner, Tim Kohler. And Dan Lavallo, a former McKinsey consultant and a professor of business strategy at the University of Sydney. They, along with Zane Williams, a senior expert at McKinsey, recently wrote an article on being objective about pruning projects and divesting proactively. This is part of our larger Bias Busters series. Tim, Dan, welcome. First, uh, let's talk a little bit about what you call the dilemma. uh, Projects or business units that simply won't die. Can you say a little bit more about that? There are a lot of them. <laughs> that's, the, that's the first thing.
1: There are a number of attachments people have to projects. Sometimes the projects won't die or something that maybe started the company and is a big legacy and is important, but it's not doing very well. The main thing about projects that won't die is that they take a really, really long time dying. So in other words, in some uh, research we did, we looked at projects that were both unprofitable and cash needy. So in other words, their sales growth couldn't sustain the investment. And you would think that somebody would kill them at some point. But the situation is those projects had uh, an 80% chance of surviving 10 years, Uh, uh, those business units. 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. This is really common, about as common as you get. And part of the difficulty, you know, there's a lot of um, emotion tied to firing people. And people don't want to do it. So they don't, and these things tend to keep living. And if people don't have processes in place, it's very unlikely to happen.
2: We also found some other research, just as this applies to business units, for example. We found that companies often would not divest a business unit until like a year or so after people started talking about it in the press already. Until it was too late. Almost. Yeah, too late. And I've been in many conversations with clients where they realize that a business unit should be divested, it's going to turn down. And you know, rule of thumb seems to be that it takes about two years after a company starts to have the conversation before they actually get around to do anything about it. Or they come into the mode that, oh, we'll, we'll fix this thing before we sell it, which never happens, of course. And you lose a lot of value over those two years by waiting. So uh, in addition to projects, the uh, whole business units in divesting or pruning the portfolio is also uh, something that companies need to be better at in order to. Uh, to maximize the value creation. So what's the likelihood of a company um, you know you talked about
0: how uh, long these projects last is that for 90% of companies? Like how how common is this?
1: The data that I was talking about was data based on the entire US economy. In the US economy for standalone companies, that's about 30% of the companies and for multi-business unit companies, uh, that's about 43% of the companies that have at least one business segment that's dying and dying for a long time. So it's a ubiquitous problem. Or actually, I should say, not dying when it should.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not dying soon enough. That's right. One of your suggested remedies is something that you call the burden of proof. Can you say a little bit more about that? Jim? Well,
2: the burden of proof idea is the idea that instead of making the case for divesting, you have to change it to keep. why should we keep this business? You know, obviously you can't do it for the whole company every year. One approach is to say five, ten percent of the big projects or oh. units every year. You ask that question, or you make the case of why should we hold on to Mm -hmm. this particular unit or why should we keep pursuing this particular project as a way of changing the the sequence around so that if you can't prove the case that you you absolutely need to keep it, then the assumption is, okay, we're going to get rid of it.
1: I don't know if they changed the burden of proof. I mean, psychologically changing the burden of proof makes an awful lot of sense. An example that's publicly known, it's been in the press, was that... Google used to allow people to spend, you know, 20%. 20% of their time doing these projects. And what they found out was those projects could be seeds that are going to grow into new businesses, or they could be weeds that need to die. Seeds and and they, um, a few years ago, found out that most of those were weeds and they stopped doing it and they killed a lot of those projects. And that kind of Constant pruning is what you need to do to be successful in getting rid of these kinds of projects.
2: A former colleague of ours used that analogy because literally, in, you know, if you're thinking about an apple tree, you have to prune it in order for it to grow successfully. Sure. And the same thing works with businesses. You, you really do have to get rid of the dead branches and things like that in order for the company to, to be successful, to thrive, yes.
1: In our last conversation, we talked about the importance of resources flowing across the corporation and how that improves performance. And this is one of the main mechanisms to free up resources to move to other opportunities. So pruning is not something that typically works if you just do it as a one-off. It should be a systematic process that you employ every year. It also makes it less painful to do year after year Mm -hmm. if you're changing the burden of proof, if that's the process, if that's what people expect. If you come in and you do it once every 10 years, the political resistance and the emotional toll it's going to take on the decision maker and the people who are going to be pruned is much much tougher to take psychologically.
2: And by the way, one of the things that we've found also is that sometimes the pruned businesses actually are better off after they've been pruned. Oftentimes, those businesses are constrained in what they can do. And as a result, when they either are spun off or sold to somebody else, you know, even with the same management team, we find that their well. performance improves because they're no longer subject to sort of certain rigid things that the corporate parent has has imposed on them. They're allowed to be more creative, maybe invest more, maybe uh, be more aggressive about closing plants or, or or shifting resources around stuff like that. So, it's not always a bad thing for the uh, managers and employees of the businesses that that are pruned. I know one uh, one company that. Uh, they celebrate Independence Day every year, which is the day that they were spun off from their parent company. Sure. But,
0: but a spinoff is different than just shutting a oh, division. Yes, oh, yes, yes. So have you seen any companies who are really good at this, pruning, create a redeployment pool for the people who would otherwise be pruned? I'm assuming that part of the value of pruning is that you can redeploy that capital in other more productive projects. In your experience, has the same held for the
2: human capital and how are they redeployed? Unfortunately, you know, redeployment typically only works in companies where they have lots of similar kinds of projects. You mm-hmm. know, if you think about oil and gas companies where you can take an oil engineer and move them from one another. project to another or a pharmaceutical company, um, it doesn't necessarily work if you've got entirely different business units, or even with engineers with different skills. So unfortunately, that's not always going to be the, the case that you can keep those resources around. It really depends on the nature of the business.
1: So, well, one of the things that we do helping with large transformations is pruning so that you can then Invest. reinvest in better growth opportunities. Mm-hmm. And if companies want to make a large transformation, it almost always involves quite a bit of pruning and then reallocating to better opportunities. Now the danger (laughs) when you're making one of those transformations is that you overestimate the opportunities and spend all the savings you've got rather than waiting for new opportunities. Oftentimes the new spending happens almost as soon as it can, rather than holding on to those huge huge savings that you've pruned and spending them as the opportunities arise. And I would say that's the biggest danger with a large transformation, is spending those savings too soon.
2: Just to pick up on something Dan was saying, he was talking about the 10-year projects, right, that sort of hang on too long, when in fact, many of those cases, those things should have been shut down within one or two years. The reason that they fall into this trap is typically the sunk cost fallacy. We've invested all this capital uh, and time and energy gone. into it, so let's keep it going, right? Which we all know is is does not make any sense at all. And uh, I was just recently, um, my daughter, Freshman in college, took her first economics courses and brought that up at a dinner table the other day with my wife. I was quite surprised uh, that she actually absorbed the concept and was able, was able to apply it. I don't remember what she applied it to, but, um, but we fall into that trap or companies re- are, are really bad at it, right? So you need to sort of have processes to eliminate that. And one approach is something that, some, that we sometimes call stage gating which is that every time you want to spend more money on a project at a certain phase of that project's life to move on to the next phase, you have to go back and get permission to keep it going. There's not the automatic presumption that once a project gets started, it will go to completion. The presumption is, at certain milestones that are predefined you know, ahead of time, and you, a, you have a, to get permission to keep going with the project. And there's a
1: point in there that I really wanna put emphasis on. You have to define these milestones in advance or else you're gonna get slippage and you're gonna fall into the sunk cost fallacy. And you have to have somebody uh, who's in charge that's going to actually stop things if you don't meet those milestones.
0: Now, venture capital investments, for example, typically have multiple series, and it sounds like what you're advocating is that in some ways companies treat their investments the same way. Absolutely. Same kind of
2: thing. The organizational dynamics are just more difficult inside a large
0: company. You talked a little bit about um, this notion in your
2: article of categorizing business investments could you say a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, it's, it's sort of similar to the changing the burden of proof, but in this case, what you need to do is you make sure that every unit or every investment right, is put into one of three or more categories. Mm-hmm. right? There are those businesses or things that we want to accelerate. There are those that we want to maintain or defend, and then there are those that we need to dispose. And you sort of force yourself to sort of categorize each business into one of those so that, once again. If you can't make the case for maintaining or accelerating a project or, or a business, then it sort of automatically goes into the dispose category. Once again, using some criteria that you, know, you don't let the processes get in the way of. You have to be sort of pretty objective, pretty non-emotional about it. But you know, once again, if you force yourself to categorize the units, you're more likely to dispose of those units that are at the bottom of the list.
1: And just to reiterate this, This has to be a continual process that you either do every time you analyze how much you're gonna invest, not a one-off. It's gotta be part of your process.
0: So how have you found that companies have established that as part of their process? You talked a little bit about stage gating in terms of ongoing investments, but what are some of the most effective ways that companies can bring this discipline to their review of their projects? Is it annual? Is it a quarterly review? How do they systematize that?
2: I think it really depends on the life cycle of the businesses. If you do it too frequently relative to the changes in the business, then it becomes sort of mechanical. Mm-hmm. So you have to use a little bit of a judgment, but you want to make sure that there's a regular process in terms of how fast the industry is changing, how fast things are going. So for some businesses, it may be every year. For some businesses, it may be a longer horizon. For some projects, it could be shorter if you're doing something in the tech world where things are changing very fast. So right. there's not one right answer. You need to figure it out for your company and for the individual projects and units as to what the right time is. But I think having a regular schedule of doing this is, is absolutely essential, as, as Dan was saying. If you don't force yourself to do it on a regular basis, whatever that cycle is, then you're going to fall back into the sloppy ways of making those decisions.
0: So it's, it's not necessarily tied to an annual budgeting process? Not
2: necessarily, no.
1: One thing that's absolutely important, this won't happen if it doesn't come from the top. It simply won't happen. So the CEO has to make a call, and this has to be driven from the top.
0: Tim, Dan, thanks again for joining us today. For a full transcript of today's episode and links to all of our past podcasts, please check out our page at McKinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance section. While there, you will also find the other articles in our Bias Buster series. If you'd like to receive updates on all our new content, you can also sign up for email updates on our website or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again for joining us today and we look forward to having you join us again sooner to future inside the strategy room
2: podcast.